service here 
at the Abundant Life Seventh-day Adventist Church located at 1720 North J Street. Our telephone number is still 702-647-2627. Also, I want to welcome those who are watching us live on the internet at www.abundantlifelv.org. It is indeed a pleasure to have you sharing with us again. If it's your first time, we're excited to have you. If you're a regular listener or you've been watching us all the time online, it's always a thrill and a privilege to have you as you worship with us here. If you'd like a copy of the program today, you may write to us at 1720 Abundant Life, 1720 North J Street, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89106, or you may also call us at 702-647-2627. We have our senior pastor today delivering part two of the message, conservative, conservative, uh, con conservatives and liberals. We hope that you enjoy the sermon, but remember, get a hold of your Bible and prepare for this awesome study. Before he comes to us to bring us this morning's message, we will hear from our mass choir with a sacred selection after which you'll hear from our senior pastor, Dr. Calvin B. Rock. Hear ye him. Oh, 
Good to have the choir back in operation, is it not? Thank you, Sister Brown, Dr. Ellis, and the other musicians, and the choir for lifting our hearts toward heaven and preparing the way for the spoken word. Shall we bow our heads? Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that it's not too late not too late in any of our lives to deepen our consecration, to open our minds, to learn, to grow. And as we search the word, may your Holy Spirit answer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> two weeks ago, two Sabbaths ago, we began a short journey that will probably conclude with one more sermon on the topic, but um, you're in good time because I'm going to give a little review of what started us and then we'll launch into the meat of today's discussion. Our topic is the liberals and the conservatives. The liberals and the conservatives. And the scripture that led us on our way is from the book of Romans chapter 15. The book of Romans chapter 15 and I'm going to read with you there verses 5 through 7. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another. To be how toward one another, everybody? To be like-minded. Let's think about that. To be like-minded toward one another. According to Christ Jesus, that you may be with one mind. What kind of mind, everybody? And one mouth. What kind of mouth? And one mouth. Glorify the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what must be remembered is that when Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome, he was dealing with a problem in the church. And the problem was simply this. There was confusion, there was disagreement about lifestyle and doctrine. Some people believing one thing and some another and some doing certain things and some wouldn't do those things. And a lot of discussion, a lot of disagreement, and a lot of tension. And if you read chapter 14, you would pick up on a number of those specific issues. But here the apostle is writing to the church and says, look, we want, you got to have peace and you can't be all divided and I'm wishing for you like-mindedness. 
and that you speak with one mouth and be of one mind. Really, if you look and dissect the problem, what was going on is the same thing that's going on in the church today. Not just abundant life, but the church universal. You have what are called liberals and conservatives. Liberals in Paul's day constituted one wing of the church and the conservatives were others in the congregation and as I've said, we, 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 we have the same kind of situation. In Paul's day, the conservatives were saying, look, we need to respect. Maybe we don't have to keep all of Moses' laws, but we need to respect those laws. After all, they were good. And the conservatives who were coming from Judaism into Christianity were bringing with them a, a certain positive attitude toward certain feast days and all of that. And the conservatives would not eat any food from any restaurant or any vendor that had been prepared by an idolater. So if a person were not a Christian and had prepared the food, then they wouldn't eat it because they felt it was unholy. And the conservatives still wanted to have circumcision as a sign of membership. They knew about baptism, but in addition to baptism, they still were insisting that the young boys be circumcised. Now the liberals said that's all wrong. The liberals said we don't need to associate with these holidays, and if you pray over the food, even though it was prepared by somebody who's not a believer, if you pray over it, it's okay, eat it. And as far as the circumcision is concerned, that's past. Today, the situation is similar, and let me see if I can define it to make it practical. We differ as liberals and conservatives, Seventh-day Adventists, if you please, in many ways. We differ in diet, in diet, we have liberals and conservatives. In dress, in our musical tastes, even in our Sabbath keeping, and even in the education of our children, we have both liberals and conservatives. The liberals among us drink decaffeinated coffee and sometimes the other kind. The conservatives are all vegans and they juice their own fruit. The liberals attend selected shows on the strip. Notice I said selected. But the conservatives feel that it's wrong to go down there for any show because that's where the world is and where certain things go on we don't want to be identified, with which we don't want to be identified. The liberal men in the church wear flashy suits and loud ties. The liberal women paint their toenails red and green and sometimes a mixture. The conservative men would never be found at a fight or boxing match down at the MGM or someplace. Um, they wouldn't go, the conservative men would never go to a football game, Elder. Never go to a football game. Not the conservative. But the liberal men can hardly wait for sundown so they can go home and play the recording they made during the Sabbath to see what went on while they were in church all day. That's the liberals. But now, nobody is all liberal and all conservative. We're all mixtures, but we all lean one way or the other, and there's some strange combinations. There's some conservatives who don't eat meat, but who cannibalize their brothers and sisters and their church leaders at Sabbath dinner every Sabbath. And there's some liberals who wear earrings all during the week, but would stay home rather than buy a $6 parking ticket on the Sabbath for a citywide convocation. Now the result of all of this, the result of all of this 
is that even in some of our families there's tension and sometimes in the church and and while it might not always bubble up to the top and cause a big explosion there are people who develop certain doubts and certain attitudes so I'd like to continue what Paul started and what we began in our last conversation by saying that there are certain principles, certain scriptures in the Bible that provide us guidelines for dealing with the options that we have, the, the selection for living that is before us. Long time ago when I was a child and some of the rest of you and the church was small, you knew everybody and you knew where they were and what they were doing and life didn't have all these intricacies and options for, for, for recreation and amusement and spending your money and all the things for dress and, and, and food. But today we have such a wide variety that there's no lexicon, there's no dictionary, there, there is no thesaurus to which you can go that tells you every little thing to do. So we have to have some guidelines. And we're going to try to review, first of all, the three that we gave the other day. And then I have one or two more I'd like to mention. Let's turn to the screen and let me bring you up to date now with the guidelines that we established from the Word of God at our former conversation. And the first guideline is simply this. All church doctrine comes from where, everybody? The Word of God. Not Ellen White, the lesser light. She helps us understand some things, and God gave her to the church. Now let's leave number one up for a while, and we'll come back. Uh, she helps, but the fact of the matter is that no doctrine, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has no doctrine from anywhere but the Bible. We believe in sola scriptura, which is Latin for only the Word of God. And we love 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. There it is for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that a man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the first thing we ought to establish is that all the church's doctrines come from this book, the Bible, and we ought to be able to turn to this Bible and point to scripture that establishes whether it's the Sabbath or the second coming or tithing or offerings or whatever it is. But let's look at number two now. And the second slide takes us to the next step. And it reads, all church doctrine is decided by the church body, not a single individual or group. Now this is rule number two. As we prepare to go even deeper into our topic, let's remember that doctrine is not decided by a preacher or a church or a member but it's decided by the entire church body. And there are three scriptures that help us here. Let's read them with the last one first in the book of Romans, and we work back toward Acts. But in the book of Romans chapter 14, there's a scripture that you should mark in your Bible. You may be familiar with it already, but the book of Romans chapter 14 says, one person esteems a day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully persuaded I in, what does that spell? In his own mind. Now that's, that's, a, that's a rule. When we're trying to decide how to live, how to take care of your family, what you're going to do on the Sabbath, whether you're going to eat in a restaurant on the Sabbath, and, you know, whether you're going to take a trip on the Sabbath, whether you're going to go down and buy a ticket and start your vacation on the Sabbath day, the church isn't going to go looking for you if you do that. We're not going to discipline you, but you ought to think about that. Do you really want to be seated on the airplane, traveling amidst all of that noise and hustle and bustle on the Holy Sabbath day? Is that really the way you want to spend your Sabbath? Go to think about it. And you have to be persuaded not by your mind, but 
in your mind. Because if you're persuaded or I am persuaded by my mind, I am likely to be misled. But if I am persuaded in my mind, it means I've read all of the pertinent information and I'm making a decision which has nothing to do with my church membership, but which may have something to do with my spirituality. So it's up to me. I must be persuaded in my mind. And then I like 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 where we have another rule that uh, needs to be kept in mind as we approach these options, these choices. Knowing this, Peter says, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any what kind of interpretation? Private interpretation. So I have no right as a minister or a pastor to get up here and give you my private interpretation of what Scripture says or what a doctrine is, and no member has that right either. Who does it? The church, the church universal. And the great example of that is Acts chapter 15. Turn there and let's look at Acts chapter 15. And certain men, verse 1, came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised, these were those conservatives, according to the custom of Moses. See, they were very conservative. They're now in a Christian era, but these fellows still want circumcision to go on. You cannot be saved. And we don't have time to read the rest of the chapter, but you read it when you go home if you like. What Acts 15 tells us is that they sent out a call. Well, you can read it in verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. So they came together and then they made a decision and the decision was issued in a letter beginning at verse 23. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles and elders and the brethren, and they went on to say circumcision was no longer valid and we don't have to do that. But now look at the, before we get that next slide, I want that slide that has to do with the world church. And uh, I want you to see that because this illustrates exactly what went on just a little while ago back in June at our general conference. This is where our doctrines are laid. They are not made in Reno at our conference office. They're not made in Las Vegas. But the world church comes together and makes decisions. Now some of the decisions the church has made, I've, I've, I, I made a confession the other time. I have a little, not a little, but I have a serious question about one thing. Some of you know what that is. And I've had some others. For instance, for instance, can I give you some, uh, some very mature, sober meat? This is not milk. This is meat. All right? This is meaty stuff. But listen to me. All of my life, I have been taught and I have preached that the only cause for divorce based upon what Jesus said is if your spouse commits adultery and you can't handle it, you leave, you can get remarried, but your spouse, the guilty party, cannot. Isn't that what we taught and learned, old timers? Sure. Well, you know what? About two general conferences ago, this church got together. These, let me tell you what these people did. Let me tell you what these people did. They got together and studied from 1 Corinthians 7. And they said, well, you can also now get remarried if you are in a marital relationship with a non-Seventh-day Adventist and that person leaves you. They don't have to commit adultery that you know of, but if you're married to a non-Christian or a non-believer and that person leaves you, now you can get remarried. And my mouth fell open. I said, that's not what Jesus said. And they said, but these people, these here people from all over the world The whole wide world who are smarter than I am. How many of you out here read Greek? How many of you read Hebrew? No, and I put my hands down too because I don't read either. 
Now, I've got some books that tell me what they say. But these people with the scholars from Andrews and Loma Linda and our higher organizations who read the original language, and I want to get into that in our next installment, our final installment, the way we read the original and what that, how that sheds light upon what we believe. They said, no, if you are married to an unbeliever and that person leaves you, then the church says it's okay for you to get remarried. And that's a change. That's a change that, frankly, when I was working at the general conference and sitting on those committees, I fought it. Well, I don't want to make too many confessions, but I did. Because I, I don't read the Greek and the Hebrew. But my Greek and Hebrew brothers say to what they're saying is, Brother Rock, if you only could read the Greek and the Hebrew, you wouldn't be so, so suspicious about what King James wrote in 1611 versus what Paul wrote 2,000 years ago. So the church makes a decision, and it is the church universal that gives us our doctrines and we must keep that rule in mind and we must also remember and I want to get that back on my slide rhythm please we must also remember that God has given authority to the church and if I get so big and if I know so much that I have to fight what the church says is right then maybe I should not be a Seventh-day Adventist because when I become a Seventh-day Adventist, I promise to follow what the church says. I, didn't you hear them? You heard them? You saw them? Do you believe that this is a Seventh-day Adventist church? Do you accept its authority? And when the church votes, the church has spoken. And while we may not always clearly understand, we have faith to believe that God speaks to the group and that God converses through his Holy Spirit with the body, and that Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, and 19, on this rock, speaking of himself, I will build my church, and I give you the keys of the kingdom, and God has given authority to his church. He's given authority to his church that exceeds the authority he's given to any individual or any group of people or any conference or any church individually, and we must keep that rule in mind. The final thing that we went over the other day, and I'm going to hit this quickly and move to the one I want you to find new and I hope helpful for this hour, is this. Principle is enduring but application changes. Malachi 3 verse 6 says, I am the Lord, I what? God never changes. And principles come from God. So principles don't change. And what are principles? Principles are guidelines for living that emanate from the character and personality of God. So they can't change. They are guidelines for living like modesty, 1 Timothy 2, 9, where the Bible reads that women and men, it means as well, should dress in modest apparel. That's a principle. It's a principle that extends from the personality of God. And it never changes. Modesty is always in vogue because it is a part of who God is. It's a part of his beauty and it's a part of his humility. But the application of modesty does change. Now, when Christ was here, do you think men wore four or five button suits with splits down the side? You know what they wore? They wore dresses. And if you want to be modest, just like Jesus was modest, my brother, you'd have to come to church in a skirt next Sabbath. You'd have to come in a dress, and we would think you were very, very peculiar. We would. So what was modest for Christ's day has changed that the, the rule has not changed. Modesty is still there, but the way it is applied is applied based upon the, the lifestyle 
and the times in which the, the Christian is living. So as we deal with our liberalism and our conservatism, we have to remember that principles don't change. God never changes. No, no, no. But even from Ellen White's day, when she wrote out and told the ladies that, that they, their dresses were too short and they should have their dresses nine inches from the ground, that's what it was 150 years ago in her day. That's what modesty was. But modesty today... Now, there's such a thing as immodesty today... But modesty today takes on an entirely different standard and an entirely different form, but it's still modesty. All right. That's the case that we made uh, in our first installment. But let me go now to the case that I want to add for today. And we'll take the next slide, please, which will help us to get on target. All right. All, or here we are, there is a difference between a changeless command and a cultural instruction. Now let me pause here because I want to do this slowly. I'm building up to something here. There is a difference between a changeless command, a command that you read in the Bible that's changeless, and something else called a cultural instruction. Let me illustrate it with the next slide. Number five, a changeless command is instruction that can and must be followed in all generations. So that there are certain instructions in the Bible that have to be followed in all generations. For instance, there is 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14, and this is for every generation. This never changes. This never changes. Look, listen. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? You know what the Bible says here? Don't be yoked up with unbelievers. And it's speaking primarily of marriage and putting, yoking your life with somebody that doesn't love the Lord and doesn't serve the Lord like you do. And that, 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 that's absolute. That is an enduring, changeless command. Another one that I want to point out is the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verse 16. Hear, hear me out now. Verse 16 of Matthew, chapter 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And up above 16, here it is. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. So God says, you don't accuse somebody because one person said it. Do you know there's been many a man hung and electrocuted because one person identified them? The Bible says that nobody should be guilty unless you've got at least two or three witnesses. And I've had many people come to me and say, he said this, and I said, do you have, you the only one seen it? Then I go to the other person, did you really do this? No, I didn't. Yes, he did. No, I didn't. Yes, he did. No. It's his word against his word, her word against his word, his word against, and, and God says, unless you've got two or three witnesses, you really don't have a case. And that is a standard in church discipline, a standard in the school, in the home, two or three witnesses. Even though when you're suspicious, even though when there's circumstantial evidence, two or three witnesses is the guideline that scripture lays down and that's lasting. It should be even today. And we would have avoided a lot of innocent a lot of innocent executions in this land had we followed that like we should. And finally, let me give you a third one. This is Luke 22, and it's verse 19. This is one of those changeless commands. And he broke bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Another changeless command. Jesus said, I want you to have communion. When I'm gone... 
I want you to have communion, and I want you to do it in remembrance of me. So that, that, that doesn't go out of style. That is a changeless command, and the reason we have communion and foot washing once a quarter or four times a year is that God said do it. It's a changeless command. Now, they might do it different ways. I've heard recently of one Adventist church where the pastor has all of the juice up front and all the bread, and he calls the members to come up by rows, and they all come and get some bread and get some juice, and then they go back and sit down. You think that's all right? How many folk think we could try that at Abundant Life? How many folk vote against that? How many folk don't know what to say about that? <laughs> all right. But let me tell you what else I heard. And this, this is true. There's a certain church not too far from here down in California where a lot of different things happen. Where when the members came in on Sabbath, everybody got a little bottle of grape juice and a little small loaf of, loaf of bread, Christina. Everybody got a little loaf of bread, a little bottle of grape juice. And the preacher said, now I'm going to start preaching and you can just drink your juice and eat your bread whenever you get ready. He said, but wait a minute. I want you to open the bottles now before I start preaching because I don't want to hear all that popping while I'm preaching. So everybody opened their bottle of grape juice. Well, Jesus, Jesus had the supper. He was talking to them while he was eating, wasn't he? So he says, I'm talking to you and you just drink your juice and eat your bread. And the party said, well, you think, what do you think about that? I said, well, that may be all right, but I don't have enough nerve to try it out of abundant life. But you see, the fact is that it's still a, a command and it doesn't change even though it may be offered a little differently here there. Next slide. And, and here we go to the cultural instruction, which is an order given to solve a particular problem in a particular place at a particular time, and it is not everlasting. Next slide will help to illustrate. Slide number seven, please. An example from the lesser light, which is from the spirit of prophecy, is on page 2, 16, and 17 of the book Education, actually, not Fundamentals, but the book Education. Listen to what it says. Now, this is a, an instruction, a cultural instruction. Since both men and women have a part in homemaking, boys as well as girls should gain a knowledge of household duties. To make a bed and put, up a, put a room in order, to wash dishes, to prepare a meal, to wash and repair his own clothing, that's for young boys, is a training that need not make any boy less manly. It will make him happier and more useful. But here's what I want you to hear. And if girls in turn could learn to harness and drive a horse, they would be better fitted to meet the emergencies of life. Amen. Now I ask you, is that an enduring command? Or is that a cultural instruction? It's a cultural instruction. So if I grab my book and say, you see there, Ellen White said every girl ought to learn how to harness a horse and drive a horse, no. That was a command given at a particular time to solve a particular program and a particular problem and illustrates the point, I hope. Another one that I really love along this line, and I'm talking about how certain things we read in the Bible and in the spirit of prophecy have to be understood in the right setting. And this is how we get off with some of our liberal and conservative debates. This is volume two, page 181. She's writing to a certain young lady. She says, you might have an influence for good and honor your Redeemer, but instead of this, you've made yourself the speech of flattering clerks and beardless youth. In other words, she was saying, honey, you shouldn't be talking to these young men without beards. If he doesn't have a beard, not having a beard back in Ellen White's day was like having your pants hanging down today. <laughs> it was the same kind. Same thing, if you saw, if, if you were living in Ellen White's day, if you were living and a young man came around, didn't have a beard, 
you would say, look at that raucous, that, that bad he, gangbanger. He walking around with no beard. <laughs> so she told the young ladies, be careful how you converse with these beardless young men. Now, is that an enduring command? Of course not. It was an instruction made for a particular time in a particular place in a way that helped to guard the young women at that time. And there are others. We won't take time to read each of them, but let me give you one more. And this is Councils on Diets and Foods, page 368. Ellen White says two things. Cheese should never be introduced to the stomach. I don't see Brother Nunez here. He's a chief honcho at Papa John. I have to talk to him. But she said, cheese should never be introduced to the stomach, and cheese is wholly unfit for food. Now, there are some conservatives in Adventism that say, you see there, you shouldn't eat cheese. Shouldn't eat any cheese. Now, it's a fact that cheese can up, you know, raise your cholesterol or whatever, and your triglycerides, and we, don't, we have to be careful. But back there, it was absolute. The saints couldn't eat any cheese. She said, don't put it in your stomach. Why? Because it was fermented. With, with manure and they, they cultured it in, in some very filthy and, and diseased ways and, and it's very different from the way it's done today. And one more, and I just got to get this one in, and this is Adventist home, page 515. The true Christian talking about cultural instruction. Cultural instruction. No, I didn't ask you to put that up already. You got to wait for me. You want to wait for me? All right. All right. Cultural instruction. The true Christian will not desire to enter any place of amusement or engage in any diversion upon which he cannot ask the blessings of God. He will not be found at the theater, the billiard hall, or the bowling saloon. Now, is that an enduring command? Or, now, you hope it's not. I know. <laughs> yeah. Now, back there, bowling alleys were, were hotbeds of prostitution and vice. They were in there gambling, and, and the prostitutes were in there hustling. And, and it was no place for children or decent and... and, and, and Thoughtful citizens. So she said, don't go there. But now, is that what the bowling lanes and alleys or houses are today? Well, of course not. They're family-oriented, and they wouldn't even allow a lot of those things in. So what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to teach church, saints, friends, visitors, is that when we read the Bible, I'm coming to the Word with a few examples too, and the spirit of prophecy, we have to remember there's a difference between everlasting changeless commands like don't be unequally yoked, that's one thing. And don't go to the bowling alley, that's another thing. And we have to be able to, to get the difference. You're with me, I'm sure. Now the next one, please, sir. We're, let's go to the next one. One of the examples from Scripture has to do with the way they treated the slaves. And I've got to move quickly. I've got about 10, 15 minutes. What Paul said in, in the book of Philemon and what he also said in Ephesians 6, 5 and 6 is that the runaway slave should go back to his master. And that's what the whole book of Philemon is all about. When you read the book of Philemon, that's what happens. Paul ran into Onesimus who was the slave and he preached and taught him and converted him. And when Onesimus got religion and everything he and Paul had bonded, he told him, Paul told Onesimus, now you go back to Philemon. And he gave him a letter. <laughs> he gave him this letter to Philemon and said, Onesimus, take this letter to Philemon, who was a Christian, and tell, Christian to tr tell Philemon to treat you like a brother, but you go on back. Now I ask you, I ask you, 
Is that an enduring kind of command? That slaves who break away have a Christian duty to go back to their masters and get some more? No, no, no. There's more, but the fact of the matter is that Ellen White herself in volume 1, page 201 and page 202 even says, and I think I'll just take a moment and read that to you, says the following. We have been placed, we have been placed over us rulers and laws to govern the people. Were it not for these laws, the condition of the world would be worse. Some of these laws are good, others are bad. The bad have been increasing, and we are yet to be brought into straight places. But God will sustain his people in being firm and living up to the principles of the word. Listen, when the laws of men conflict with the law of God, we are to obey the latter, the laws of God, whatever the consequences to be, may be. The law of the land requiring us to deliver a slave to his master, we are not to obey. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The woman was right on. But she is contradicting what Paul did. Now who's right? Paul or Ellen White? They're both right. They're both right. Paul was writing in the content of his day. She was writing in the context of a much later day with a much different political atmosphere and she was giving an entirely different advice. So there are enduring commands and there are cultural instructions. And one of those cultural instructions that I want to point out ere we wrap up this segment is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Look now in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and let me read verses 4 to 6. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. All right, we can go to the next slide now. That's okay. But every man who prays, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaven. For if a woman is not covered, let it be shorn, let her be shorn, also be shorn. But if it is a shameful, if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, that is bald-headed, let her head be covered. In other words, Paul was telling all the women in, in Corinth, you can't go to church and pray unless you got a hat on. That was the rule. Now I ask you, was that an enduring, everlasting command, or was that a cultural instruction? All right, you're with me. If you're with me there, let's see if you stick with me for the next one. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. Look at what he has to say. And... I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but be in silence. That's what he told them. That a woman should not teach a man. Shouldn't have any ladies being Sabbath school teachers or women up here preaching. A woman is not supposed to teach a man. Now I ask you, is that enduring command or was that a cultural instruction? <laughs> All right. All right. You're right. And, 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 and it's possible to conclude that for many reasons. But let me, let me read you just a little. Well, before I get to that, I have, I have one more for you. And that's 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35. 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35, where uh, the, the Bible makes it very clear. It says, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to S-P-E-A-K. And there's a lady that's answering me right there. <laughs> Speak it up. But they ought to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let, they ask, let them ask their own husbands at home. Now I ask you, was that enduring command 
or was that a cultural instruction? Absolutely. And the reason it, you can know it's cultural, there's several reasons. Let me give you just one. And this is William Barclay's description of the status of the Jewish woman in his book on Timothy and Titus and so forth. In Jewish law, she was not a person but a thing. She was entirely at the disposal of her father or her husband. She was forbidden to learn the law. To instruct the woman in the law was to cast pearls before swine. Women had no part in the synagogue service. They were shut apart in a section of the synagogue or in a gallery where they could not be seen. I think I told you, I, my wife and I were in New London, South Africa several years ago, and we walked into church, and I went up to speak on a Sunday. The whole Adventist church came out on Sunday to greet us, and I went up to preach, and she sat down, and when she sat down, the church just went up in smoke. People were murmuring and laughing and talking, and after service, I asked the pastor, what happened? Why did we just black folk, you, like you are? He said, well, the problem, pastor, is your wife sat down on the men's side of the church. Well, that's a little bit of what he's trying to talk about here. A man came to the synagogue to learn, but at the most, the woman came to hear. In the synagogue, the lesson from the scripture was read by members of the congregation, but not by women, for that would have been to lessen the honor of the congregation. It was absolutely forbidden for a woman to teach in a school. She might not even teach the youngest children. Women, slaves, and children were classified together and there's more. So that's what Paul was dealing with. And if a woman got up to teach and preach in that situation, it would have turned out the whole thing. It would have upset the whole apple cart. It, 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 you couldn't have had church. You couldn't have preached the gospel. So he was dealing with a particular problem in a particular generation and in a particular situation. And he, Paul, had no idea that there'd still be folk walking around in the year 2010 talking about it. He was writing to the church there dealing with their problem. And it's unfair and it's unfortunate when we pick up the essence or the spirit of what Paul was dealing with with that one church in that situation in that time and we try to translate it to 210. And another way we know that it is simply temporary or a particular policy and instruction for that time is the very thing that the apostle himself has to say when he talks about it later in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says in verse 2, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions. What did he call all this? Traditions. And then in verse 16 he says, But if someone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom. So he qualifies all this business as traditions and customs, and that's exactly what they are and exactly what they were, and you and I, as we deal with our liberalism and our conservatism, need to keep that in mind. All right, I'll, I'll suspend this. You can take, take the screen down now, uh, or take it off the screen. Let me conclude this way. Where does all this leave us? When you're making your decisions about your dress and your food, and your Sabbath keeping. Now, if you're breaking the commandments, working on the Sabbath, you know, you got to answer to the church for that. We're not even talking about those issues where you're outside the parameters of obedience. You see, there's a, there's a, there's a scale. And you can be liberal or you can be conservative. You can be so conservative, you wear your dress down to your ankle, and that's all right. That's all right. You can be a good Adventist doing that. Nobody, you know, that's okay. Or you can be a good Adventist if you dress more liberally and more modern, more modernly, as long as you don't go overboard. So you've got, you've got a range. Every, this is not a cookie culture, a cookie cutter culture. Everybody's got to look the same. Everybody's got to wear black suit on Sabbath and uh, put your Bible in a little black bag and say, happy Sabbath, happy Sabbath. 
You know, just everybody. We're not a bunch of robots all looking alike and all dressing alike, all thinking alike, but we should stay in the circle. We should stay in the parameter. You don't want to go to the extremism in your diet where you, you, you can't enjoy ice cream cone where once in a while, you know. And, and, and you don't, you don't want to be on the other end where you don't care what you eat and what you do and where you go. We stay in the circle. And what you do has to be guided by these kinds of rules. And when we do that and keep our eyes on Jesus, remembering that our example is no man and no woman, that we are making our decisions in our own minds with our families, and your family might do it a little differently from my family, that's all right, as long as you're in the circle. You can be a good member of the church and a happy member of the church. And if you come to church every Sabbath with a shirt and tie, fine. But if you come in your sports shirt, neat and clean, nobody's going to bother you. We are a family, and we have to learn to live together. And as Paul has admonished us, we must be able to speak with one mind. We have such a thing as, as diversity, unity in diversity. But it is diversity within the scale. And we can be liberal. You may turn on your recorder on Sabbath and look at it Saturday night. Nobody's going to bother you. That's between you and the Lord. And you may be a vegan, and that's fine. Nobody's going to bother you. That's between you and the Lord. You may go to the bowling alleys. You, you, you may do some things that others might say, well, I'm just not comfortable. But when it's all said and done, we must be guided in our minds by the principles of the Word of God, doctrines set by the church, lifestyle, in our own minds for us and our families, and we can't judge each other, we can't put each other down. There are no second-class members of the church of God. There's no big I and little you. And we must be careful while we try to take the log out of somebody's or the splinter out of somebody else's eyes and we've got logs in our own. And you know what I found out in my brief years on earth? I found out that the people who are most conservative and hard on everybody else, they always have some big skeletons in their closet. You watch it. Somebody that's walking around, you invite him home, to, to your house. I had one fella come to my house. My wife was away and I invited a friend of mine to come to eat and he picked up the loaf of bread and started reading to see if it had hog log on, the, on there. I said to myself, I ought not feed that brother. I invited him to my house and he's inspecting the, the, the labels, trying to see what's in it. But people like that People who walk around with the church manual in their, in their hands and they're always measuring somebody's dress and always looking and trying to just watch it. Those folk got some big skeletons in their closet. But what we need is a balanced mind. We need the love of Christ that helps us and makes us and binds us together in fellowship with our eyes on Jesus. And he is the perfect balance of conservatism and liberalism. He's perfect. He, 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 is, he is justice and mercy. He's a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. He's the angel of the covenant and the lawgiver. He's the lion of the tribe of Judas, Judah. And that's conservative. And he is the lamb of God, the liberal sacrifice upon the cross of Calvary where he gave his life, where he shed his blood to cover our sins and make his robe of righteousness available. He is our advocate and our judge. He is the refiner's fire, the conservative fire of the refiner, but he's also the liberal balm in Gilead that heals the sin-sick soul. He's the curse of evil, but he's the blessing of Gerizim. And more than that, 
He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the yea and the nay, the human and the divine. He is the high priest and the sacrifice. He is Mary's baby and the Ancient of Days. He's the seed of Abraham and the great I Am. He's the lily of the valley and the rose of Sharon, son of God and son of man, and I love him for what he is. And I love you, and we must love each other, and we must advance toward the kingdom with our eyes on him. And as he fills our minds with knowledge, and by the Holy Spirit, he speaks to us, and we drop our preconceived, you know, some people's problem is that they're so stuck on the preacher who baptized them. I know we got to go, but let me get this in. I got to say it. Just because a man baptized you doesn't mean he's God. You should love him, but just because he taught you something doesn't mean that he knew it all. Read Acts 19, where Paul went and met those folk and said, Who baptized you? And they said, John the Baptist. He said, Did he tell you about the Holy Ghost? And they said, No, we never heard of the Holy Ghost. Because John wasn't up on that. And Paul taught them the Holy Ghost, and Paul baptized them the second time. So just because you got baptized with a certain kind of thing that some preacher taught you 40 years ago, 20 years ago, that doesn't mean it's it. Open your mind and read and learn and study and grow that's what I want to do Father in heaven thank you for your word thank you for Jesus who is justice and mercy may your word be a seed in good soil sorry Lord about the poor preacher and the inability to say it just like I want to but you take it, Lord, with the Holy Spirit and put it in the hearts of your people the right way. And while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, we never leave here without opening the doors of the church. There are two ways you can do this. You can raise your hand and our Bible workers will give you a little slip and you can put your phone number there and we'll keep in touch with you. Or you can tear off that 